0: Uh, We are in Dan Owens' session, and so I'm going to briefly introduce him. Yeah, go ahead, and you can... (laughs) There goes Dustin. I'm going to introduce Dan, and then um, after I introduce Dan, then we'll have a prayer by Daniel Mayfield, um, and then a song by John Moore, uh, and then Dan will continue with his... his thing. That's what you do as you do your thing. <laughs> Dan Owen has been married to Cindy for the last 48 years. They have three children and seven grandchildren. Dan teaches seven courses in the undergraduate program at Bear Valley Bible Institute here. Uh, and he also teaches three graduate courses. So for past students you might be enticed with that Um, he has preached and taught full-time for 42 years that is uh, seldom the case with preachers and we are privileged to have dan with us now he now serves as the teaching minister for the broadway church of christ there in paducah kentucky Uh, his regular online blogs include conversations with dan passage attack, and his most recent book is a teacher's commentary on 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, I would greatly encourage you, if you have not already, go to YouTube and just type in Conversations with Dan. Uh, Dan and Jet uh, Lovejoy uh, produce these videos. They're sometimes brief, sometimes a little bit more lengthy, uh, but they answer all sorts of topics. Um, They're not afraid of any question. They kind of approach the questions in a bold manner, and that's really a testimony to who Dan is. As I'm standing up here introducing Dan, I'm also looking at his uh, used Greek New Testament. Dan is a man of the word, and I don't say that about many people. Um, Dan has been an inspiration to so many, to so many students, and continues to be an inspiration to so many. Um, I love and appreciate Dan, and and very few people have shaped me spiritually in ways that Dan has as well. Uh, Dan has his degree in curriculum and instruction, uh, so he's very good at what he does in teaching and educating individuals, uh, but perhaps the greatest attribute of Dan is his passion for God. And that is seen in how Dan is a student and continues to be a student for God's Word. Uh, So we will be blessed uh, most certainly by this session with Dan Owen. Um, So with all that said, I'll let Daniel Mayfield go ahead and take it over with a prayer and then John Moore.
1: All right. Let me see here. On. All right, I want you to be involved today in this. It's not just going to be a lecture. I want you to get your Bibles out. Open up your Bibles because that's the way you'll be most benefited by what we're speaking about here today. We're going to spend our time in First Corinthians. That's what our lectureship is over is 1 Corinthians. And we're going to spend our time together there today. Um, the Lord's Supper, that, that Supper which Jesus instituted on the night of his betrayal, is a central thing for Christians and who we are. Uh, the reason I use this uh, mosaic here, it's a very early Christian mosaic, and in, in symbolic language, it depicts the taking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the acrostic over on the right is the word ichthus, which is fish. And you see the fish on the table here. Didn't know we eat fish in the Lord's <laughs> Supper. Well, we don't. But ichthus to the ancient Christians, Jesus, Jesus, Christos, Theos, Wios, Soter. The word symbolized Jesus for those people. And this is Jesus on the plate right here. So we're, we're taking Jesus into ourselves in the Lord's Supper. Um, some of the early apologists, you know, you have the word in First Peter, be ready to give an apologia, you know. A reasonable explanation, a defense. Justin Martyr wrote Apology 1 and Apology 2 in the second century to explain what Christians did everywhere. But um, the, the explanation and, and, and understanding of the Lord's Supper, I believe, is one thing that's lacking among us. The way I see the church as I go different places is that we are, we are tunnel vision and we see one aspect of the Lord's Supper. And we tend to think about and observe one aspect of the Lord's Supper. But there's more to it than this and we need to broaden our understanding of it, and we also need to think about the way we go about it somewhat in our assemblies, and whether we're really giving it the kind of emphasis that the New Testament church gave it in the New Testament times. So we're going to talk from the text of First uh, Corinthians. First, if you'll turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. Now we've I had some good presentations on 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 and so forth. But let me go back to what I said last night. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is a unit. It is a discussion. You don't study 1 Corinthians 8 and you're done and next Sunday you're in a new universe and study 1 Corinthians 9 and the next Sunday you're in a brand new world and you study 1 Corinthians 10. That's being dishonest with the text. Eight through ten is a conversation, and if you don't finish the conversation all the way through, you don't get at all what he's trying to say, see? This conversation is about temple food, and in the Oxyrhynchus papyri, there are numerous ancient invitations from this area of Greece to temple meals. Uh, uh, Polonius, uh invites all of of those who receive this invitation to dine in the Serapian temple at uh, nine o'clock tomorrow evening. He's asking them to come and to eat with his family, and he's asking them to consume the food which was offered to the idols in honor of Serapius, the god, Say Serapian, the god. This happened with all kinds of temples and all kinds of places. If you continue going through those papyri, you also have uh, Andronicus and his wife, whatever her name is, invite you to their home to have a meal with their son who's coming of age in honor of the God so-and-so, and and we'll be having this kind of food, but it's temple food, Mm -hmm. food that's been offered to idols. Okay, Now, in the context of whether you ought to do that or not, if you stop at chapter 8, you don't get what Paul's talking about. He's not done. And if you make your conclusions on what you ought to do off of chapter 8, you're going to draw not Paul's conclusion at all. You're going to draw the wrong conclusion. If you go through chapter 9, where he tries to get you like Dustin did so well last night about giving up your right for the sake of the salvation of souls, he's talking about, in the context, them being willing to give up their right to eat this temple food, wherever the situation was, at home or at the temple, for the salvation of souls. That's where he's really headed. And if you go to the first part of chapter 10, you'll notice there, if you scroll down the first few verses of chapter 10, Look for how many times he talks about eating and drinking and eating and drinking. And the Israelites were all baptized in the cloud and the sea and the Moses and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, food and drink, see? And then he starts talking about the Israelites and their experiences and they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What does that mean? Volleyball. (laughs) No, that was the prelude to their idolatrous fornicating worship, see? And if you keep reading the text, it talks about the Moabites and how in one day there fell 23 or 24,000, and that's Numbers 25, where Balaam couldn't curse them. But what Balaam got the Moabites to do was invite them to dinner. Oh, it's just dinner. It's just eating food. So they invited the Israelites to dinner. And you remember how all that turned out? They, they first sat down and had dinner, and then they started boogieing down, and pretty soon they were all having their fornication all over the place, and that Phinehas guy had to stick some guy through, you know, him and the woman in the tent. and yeah, That's what happened there. But all through that text, eat, drink, eat, drink, eat, drink, they're, they're saying it's just food. No, it's not just food. And when you get down to chapter 10 verse 16 Paul's point if you keep reading till the end of his discussion is let's talk about the food that we eat and what it means and the food that they eat and what it means and why you ought to be running the other direction from that food see so he says the cup of blessing which we bless 10:16 is it not a sharing participation fellowship communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a sharing, participation, fellowship, communion in the body of Christ? For we all, being many, are one loaf, one body, and we all partake of the one loaf. Now let's just stop like right there and act like that's in its own world, but if you keep reading, which I think you should, He says, you know, in the Old Testament, in Judaism, those that served the tabernacle ate of the sacrifices. Did you catch that? They ate the Jewish sacrificial meat. What were they doing? They were having a meal with God. They were partaking in a relationship and a fellowship with God. That sacrifice became their personal sacrifice to God. God was accepting them because of that sacrifice, and they were eating a covenant meal, with God. Uh, In Samuel, in 1 Samuel, Elkanah and his wife and children, that's exactly what they were doing right there. The portions that were given. That was the temple food. The tabernacle food. The sacrificial meat that was given to Hannah and all that. This is throughout the theology of the Old Testament. Now keep reading in Corinthians down to verse 20 in verse 10. The sacrifices of the pagans, they offer those sacrifices to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be sharers, partakers, have fellowship. It's kononoi. You know it. Koinonia, kononoi. Same word in 10 16 and 17. Same word in verse 20. I don't want you to be sharers with demons. Okay? And he says are you able to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time are you able to eat from the table of the Lord and the table of demons at the same time are you going to provoke God to jealousy does that sound like the eating of this food is like a no big deal to Paul that he that you can either do it or not do it no he said what he meant in 10:14 when he said flee from idolatry But no, we just like to read chapter 8, and it says, you know, there's nothing. Meat's just meat. But we haven't listened to the end of the conversation. See? And what he's telling us about the Lord's Supper is there is a spiritual connection that we make in the Lord's Supper that's called koinonia. Now, koinonia, let's talk about what that is in the New Testament, actually. It is... To, to define it as I understand it, a relationship that each of us shares with God which we also share with everybody else that has that same relationship with God. So if, if Bart and I are sitting in a Sunday morning service and we're taking the communion and I'm thinking about God, I'm so thankful that th- this sacrifice of Jesus is my sacrifice. And as I'm eating this bread, I'm eating his body like they ate the part of the bull or the goat that they sacrificed in the Old Testament, see. And I'm saying that this is my sacrifice. Jesus is my sacrifice. And because you accept me, Lord, because of this sacrifice, you and I have this special relationship, which is called koinonia in the Bible. And this special relationship that I have with you, Lord, I also share with Bart because he has the same relationship with God that I have relationship. And I share it with Ken because he has the same relationship that I have. So our koinonia in the Lord's Supper is horizontal because we're sharing something deeply spiritual with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's at the same time vertical because that relationship is something that we share uniquely with God. Who are those in fellowship? Those are those that share the relationship with God that I share, and we share that with each other. It's very, very special but what we don't realize sometimes is what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. And Paul makes a great deal of this in 1 Corinthians. It's not just the horizontal relationship. See, we I was raised with this mentality, I don't know about you, that the Lord's Supper is something strictly between me and God. That's wrong. That's wrong. You read 1 Corinthians, that's wrong. No, the Lord's Supper is definitely something I share with you that I also share with God. And that second element in there is really important to our understanding of what we're supposed to do in the Lord's Supper. Okay, now I know it's not in Corinthians <clears throat> and I'm not going to do like, I'm not going to go all over the Bible. I'm going to stick Corinthians, but there's one passage that really helps me here. And that's 1 John Chapter 1, <coughs> verse 3. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 explains why we preach the gospel to other people. Why do we need to go out to the world and share the gospel with other people? Now listen to it. John's talking as an apostle. That which we, the apostles, have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. How come, John? So that you all out there may have koinonia with us And our koinonia, listen, is with the Father and with His Son. So we share something with the Father and the Son that we want you also to share so that we can share it with each other what we also share with the Father and the Son. That's koinonia, see? And then he goes on to tell us that you can't live a lifestyle in darkness and have koinonia. You have to be trying to walk in the light to have koinonia. And so when we come and we take the Lord's Supper, we're sharing something that's both horizontal and vertical. <clears throat> so I want to ask you this, <clears throat> and I'm not, I'm not telling you at all what you should do or how you should enhance this, but brothers and sisters, somehow, in the way we communicate to our congregations in our assemblies around the Lord's Supper, we need to capture somehow This horizontal element of the Lord's Supper as well as the vertical. One way I do that personally is when I'm taking the Lord's Supper, I look around and I say, man, I love that person. They've struggled. They're really trying to be faithful. I'm so glad they're part of the body of Christ with me. I look over here at, at maybe a, a young lady that's been abused by men and she's been a drug addict and everything and she's sitting in here in the in the auditorium and I say, Lord, I'm so thankful that she's my sister in Christ and I share a relationship with God with her that that I have with see that's really a part of the thought process that is biblical in the book of First Corinthians. Because what we're doing is like what the ancient Israelites did in their sacrificial meals and it's like what the pagans do in their demonic meals Uh, and Paul was sure that they were truly in those meals having fellowship with the demons behind those cults and we're truly in this having fellowship with God this is a big deal this is one of those things which would have been called in Latin in the early church sacramentum because it's holy It's special. It's where God and man meet some way, see? And it would be called in the Greek world mysterium. It was a mystery because it's where God and man meet, see? And we meet others that have that relationship with God. Okay. Now, secondly, the Lord's Supper is a demonstration of unity in Christ. Look with me at chapter 11, it's unfortunate, I think, that when we introduce the Lord's Supper in most churches of Christ, how many of you have heard 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 and following like 50 jillion times? But almost every time it's divorced from the context that it's in. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians eleven 17. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In commanding you this, I do not praise you, because your coming together, underline that word, come together, your coming together is not for the better, but for the worst. Now, that for you Greeks, that's sunirkomai, and it occurs like five or six times, maybe more than that in chapters 11 through 14, come together. Uh, And it's talking about that time, that day. It was the Lord's Day Assembly when God's people in ancient times came together in an ecclesia, in an assembly, okay? And so honestly, folks, the Lord's Supper is designed by God to be done when we come together as a church. And that's a very important factor of this. So he says, first of all, when you come together in ecclesia, that means in the assembly, See? When we come together in the ecclesia, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I partly believe it. So here's what was happening. If you read the whole book of Corinthians up to here, which I do and have, and what he says is there were these factions at Corinth following these different unnamed leaders, and when they came together, they made those factions evident in the assembly. So that like if we just separated really blatantly in this room and there was a little group over here that just really didn't want to have anything to do with anybody else and there was a tight little group here in the middle, there was a little group back there, you know, etc. That's what they were doing, see? And the, the big dog in each of those groups was the one who had the following of those groups. So they were making the Lord's Supper a demonstration of division in the assembly, See, And he says this, verse 19 is tough, so go home and read it in several different translations, but this is Dan's translation of it. It says, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved might be made more evident among you. Now, see, those who are approved, some translations have inserted the word God, those who have God's approval. That's not in there at all. That's not what it means. It means those who have the approval of men in the different factions might stand out among you. So what he's saying is you're doing this to demonstrate who's got the bigger groups of followings and who are the strongest political leaders in the group. That's what was happening here. Okay? And that's why Paul says, I got nothing good to say about what you're doing. So he says in verse 20, therefore, when you come together, it's not possible to take the Kuriakon, the Lord's Supper. Because, see, the Lord's Supper is not a demonstration of division, it is not a demonstration of faction. The Lord's Supper is a public demonstration of koinonia, of fellowship. That's what it's supposed to demonstrate. So he says, the way you guys are doing this, it's impossible to eat the Lord's Supper. And he explains, for each one of you takes before the other his own supper. Now notice the contrast between the Lord's Supper on the one hand and his own supper on the other hand. There's nothing selfish about the Lord's Supper. It's not about my own supper. I I understand that many of you have been trained all your life to think that the Lord's Supper is my own, me only. And it's all about me during that time. That's not right. So he says, you know, some of you are taking your own supper. And he says, um, some uh, are eating and drinking. Others are getting drunk. And uh, then he says, one who's hungry while others are getting drunk. And then he says, don't you have houses to eat and drink with? I read between the lines. There were some wealthy folks at Corinth, and they were the in crowd. Does anybody's church have an in crowd in it? <laughs> now I've been around the block a few times, Okay. And there's an in crowd and there's an out crowd. Now, the out crowd, those are your poorer folks, the, the folks that may not have as good of houses and the folks that might not dress as nicely. And so I get the impression that some of these folks in the poorer crowd were being excluded over into that group over there. And when these people were busy eating, those people didn't even have anything. They didn't even have any part to eat. Okay, so some are hungry and another is brother. Uh, another is drunken. He says, "Don't you have houses to eat and drink in?" He means if you're going to have a common meal. By the way, there is in the brotherhood this uh, theory of, among some that the Lord's Supper began out of an agape meal. That is false. There's no proof of that at all. I've got. If I have another lecture, I can tell you why and give you all the reasons why that's never been true. But Paul right here tells you it's never been true. It was never part of a common meal. Never. Okay, it's true that in second and third century, people had an agape, and the agape was usually held later in the afternoon after they had a, a church service with the Lord's Supper in the morning, and the agape was uh, comparable to our fellowship meals, which don't have anything to do usually with what we're talking about here, and they often gave part of that food to the poor and everything in the community. That was the agape, but this is not. This is the Lord's Supper, see? And Paul says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you, do you despise the assembly of God? Now see if you go back up to verse 18, when you come together in Ecclesia, in the assembly, see, do you despise the assembly of God? This has got nothing to do with buildings, this has to do with what you do in the assembly, the worship, the Lord's Day, Lord's Supper assembly. What do you do there? It's not the place for a common meal. He says, you shame them that have not. And he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Okay? So then he gives them the passage we've all heard a thousand times. Okay? We're going to talk about that some more again. You know, it's, it's another Sunday in the churches of Christ. What's the guy going to read? There's nothing wrong with this, but that's all they ever read practically. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord... What I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, Eucharist, Eucharist, what word do you hear there? Eucharist. Eucharist. And the ancient Christians often called it this because that's what went on there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after the supper. That means he gave thanks for the cup, and he broke, he divvied it out to the people like he did the bread, and he said, "This is the uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me." All right, <clears throat> so we read that, but when you come down here to verse twenty-seven, that's where I want to hit. I'm going to not give you the party line here at all, okay? So then, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, anaxios. Anaxios is an adverb. Adverbs can only modify verbs. They can't modify people, which are nouns. So this is not about people being worthy or unworthy. This is about people eating and drinking unworthily or in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy way. Now, let me think, if I go back up in the context of what we read a few minutes ago, how exactly in this context was the church at Corinth doing this thing in an unworthy manner? Was it not that they were making it a display of division, Isn't that what it says? They were making it a display of division instead of a demonstration of unity and koinonia in Christ. That is the unworthy manner. Okay? Oh, see, we're thinking, oh, but I got to keep my mind. I got a picture the bloody dying Jesus on the cross. And if I can't keep that mental picture, if I if, if my mind won't let me do that for however long. Oh, Lord, please hurry up and get done because I don't know if I can do it any longer Then I'm doing it. That's not what this says. Plus, there's other things we can think about. That's a good thing to think about what the Savior has done for us. That's part of it. Don't misunderstand. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the way you're treating your brothers and sisters and the way you're doing this whole thing, see? Which again emphasizes the horizontal relationship in the church And how we need to do this as a display of unity for the baptized believers. See, we are together in koinonia, in Christ. And we're demonstrating that togetherness, that relationship which we share with each other, which we share with God. We're demonstrating this in the feast. Now, again, I ask you to ask yourself, don't just... Pulling this off on somebody else, Daniel. I'll try to apply it to ourselves, okay? So I ask you to ask yourselves: what does this say to us in our congregation? What are we doing in our congregation that somehow communicates this, this horizontal fellowship and the fact that this is a statement of koinonia and fellowship and relationship between the members of the body of Christ? God does want us to be one in Christ. Amen. Jesus prayed for that. And if there's a, ever a moment when we should be able to be one in Christ, it's in this koinonia. It's in this true fellowship meal where we should be one in Christ. Jesus said, you know, if you're going to offer your sacrifice... And you remember that your brother has aught against you. Go first and be reconciled to your brother and then offer your sacrifice. Listen to me. The ancient church viewed the Lord's Supper as offering a sacrifice to God and eating the sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament. So in the ancient writings in one of the oldest books there is in Didache 14.1. It talks about the Lord's Supper and how we need to be reconciled to our brothers so that our sacrifice will be pure. See, this is all in Corinthians. See, if we'd read outside of chapter 11, verse 23 through 27. You know, when you read Corinthians, I recommend that you start with chapter 1 and read the whole thing all the way through until you get to this place. And that'll help us in our understanding. All right. So it's a demonstration of unity. How can your congregation, how can our congregation in some way communicate this, show this in, our, in the way we do our worship service? I think it's a fair question if we're going to take this seriously. All right. Now then, thirdly, and this is the easy one for all of us here because this is where we've all always been. The Lord's Supper is an identity memorial. For the people of God, you all know Exodus 12, when God sent the death angel through Egypt, and uh, every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb on it, the firstborn died, from the lowest slave to the highest, the king of Egypt. You know that happened that night. And in in that chapter and the next, God said He was going to set up that time as a day to remember. He said, "Remember this day." He keeps saying, "Remember this day." The word remember and the word memorial are are related, excuse me, to each other. Why did they need to remember that day? Because it was that day that gave them their identity as a people. That day was when God delivered them. That day was when they went out from Egypt free. That day was when when God took them out of bondage. Even when God gave them the Ten Commandments, he said, I am the Lord your God who... Did what? Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Who are we, Israelites? We're the people that God chose and brought up out of the land of Egypt. So remember this day. See, what was Jesus eating when he instituted the Lord's Supper? He was eating the Pascha, the Passover. See, and they were remembering in Deuteronomy seventeen three, Deuteronomy sixteen three, Deuteronomy seventeen three. You, I think it's sixteen. Uh, look it up. It's in one of those two. but it talks about the the a bread of affliction. That's the terminology, the bread of affliction. and in the I ate the Passover one night with a Jewish family that had become Christians. I'd baptized them into Christ, and they still had Passover, but they did it all thinking about Jesus in the other way. See. So we ate the Passover and he took out the bread, and he said to us. Do you see the stripes on the matzo? The matzo is the unleavened bread. Do you see the stripes on the matzo? And we said, yes. He said, these used to be for us the stripes on the backs of our people who were burdened with slavery. But now since we know Jesus, these are his stripes. For by his stripes we are healed. See? Now their identity comes from the death of Christ. So that bread of affliction, which was in Jesus' hands, and all of a sudden he threw a new wrinkle when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He took that bread of suffering, that bread of affliction, and he said, now this, this bread of suffering is my body, which is given for you. Do this from now on in remembrance of me. The day that gave us our identity was the day the love of God was manifested at the cross and Jesus brought us out of our sins. That's, who ma- that's what makes us who we are Amen. as Christians. We're the redeemed, see? That was purchased with thy blood for God. Men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's what we think about when we think about who we are. So instead of just telling our people, now y'all, if you can't keep that mental picture of the blood of Jesus in your mind until we say the next song or something, you're all going to... No, that's not it. What we need to tell them to do is remember what happened. And remember that that's who we are. That that's what God has done for us. See, that's the idea of a memorial. It's not supposed to be just gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. (laughs) Y'all think I'm nuts. I am kind of. But that's what a lot of people think of as the Lord's Supper. My goodness, folks, we're the, the baptized, redeemed, blood-bought people of God. Amen. And this event gives us our identity as a people. Who am I? I'm, I'm God's child. I'm God's redeemed person. And every time I come here, I remember the day, I remember the death, and I remember that by His stripes I am healed. So do this in remembrance of me. Amen and amen now here we go. There's two little words up on here. That top one we've already talked about, eukaristeo. Thank you. That bottom one, eulogeo. Eulogeo means to praise or thank or bless. Now, everybody listen, All, especially all you men. You men are hard, hard-headed. So listen to me. I want you to go to your Bibles, and you don't have to know these Greek words, go to your Bibles, go to every account in the Gospels of the feeding of the five thousand and the feeding of the four thousand and the institution of the Lord's Supper. You will find that at the feeding of the five thousand and the feeding of the four thousand that Jesus took the loaves. some translation some, some gospels will say he gave thanks and he broke it, and he gave it out. See? And if you read another gospel account, it'll say tell you the same thing, but it'll say he took the loaves, and he blessed it, and he broke it and handed it out. And you'll see that these two words are being used interchangeably. To bless does not mean... Hocus pocus, a hum and a hum and a, hum and a hum. And, you know, And and I'm, I'm being facetious but serious. Do you believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation that we change the bread into the literal flesh of Christ? Do you all believe that? Yes, sir. Then why, men, why? Do you say in your Lord's Supper prayers, Lord, please bless this bread. You missed it all together. Huh. The, the blessing never was to the bread. Baruch Yahweh, Melech, Ha'eretz. Blessed be thou, O Lord, our God, King of the earth. See? The, the blessing, the praising, the thanking is going up to God. It's not going on the bread. God is not doing anything to that bread. You are praising and thanking God for this bread and everything it brings to your mind that we've just been talking about, about the marvelous love of God and the sacrifice of Christ. You're breaking out in praise and thanks. See, this is the same word Paul uses in Ephesians 1, 3. You know, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. You're thanking God. And then if you read all the other accounts and you read even the institutional accounts, meaning the night that he was betrayed, you'll see in different gospels, some say Eucharist, oh, some say Oh, It means the same thing. What does it mean? Thank you, God. How can I ever thank you? What language can I borrow to thank the dearest friend? For this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, let me never, never, see, outlive my love to thee. That great old song by Bernard of Clairvaux. Thank you. Now listen, men. The Lord's Supper prayers that Jesus in the early church prayed. Some of y'all have already quit listening to me, but I really wish you would, because you can help our churches. The Lord's Supper prayers are not help me prayers. And that's what I hear most. Help me, Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. That's not the Lord's Supper prayer. Amen. The Lord's Supper prayer is, Oh God, how can I ever thank you for what you've done for me? I was lost and I was doomed and I was damned and you loved me and you gave your son for me. And I thank you, God, and I praise you and I can never thank you enough for what you've done. And those were the prayers and that's why in 1 Corinthians 14, Verse 16, he said, if somebody comes into your assembly that's unlearned, if you eulogio, you if you bless with the Spirit, how can the one who fills the place of the unlearned say the amen at your Eucharistia? So in that one verse, you've got eulogio you and Eucharistia, and they mean the same thing. What's he talking about? He's saying that when the thanker which is the guy that gets up to lead the Lord's Supper prayers. He says, Oh Lord, how can I thank you? And he thanks you for all the wonderful things God has done. And then the church says, Amen. Amen. How many of you in your churches praise and thank God at length at the Lord's Supper? And then the church brings out a resounding Amen. Yes, Lord, we are all grateful and thankful. We're engaged in Eucharistia. The Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, see? This is what the Lord's Supper is. It is a great thanksgiving. It's not Turkey Day. That's not the great thanksgiving. The great thanksgiving... It's what we do on Sunday mornings. Amen. We don't teach our people all this stuff. And the Lord's Supper becomes something dry and boring and repetitive. And we don't, they're not excited about it and they're not moved by it and their own Christianity is not deepened by it because they don't know to think all of these things and do these things at the Lord's Supper. Okay. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of our faith in the redemptive work of Christ. Verse 26 of chapter 11 says, As often as you eat this bread, now see, notice he says this bread. That's distinguishing it from all other bread, from your own meals that you eat. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. What are we saying? as a people when we involve ourselves in the Lord's Supper. We're saying, I have put all the eggs of my life in the basket of the death of Jesus Christ. What happened at the cross is the center of my life. The redemptive work of God at the cross is, is what I'm all about, what all of us are all about. We believe so strongly in the death of Christ and in the blessings of that death that we live our lives around it. Every time we meet together, we say, this is where my faith is. This is where my trust is. This is where my joy is. This is where my hope is. And I love that song that says, I can't remember the rest of the words, in one bright chain of loving right until he comes. Without the resurrection, the death of Christ is nothing. And yes, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Christ, but it's only able to be a remembrance of the death of Christ because of His resurrection and give, it gives us hope of His coming. Romans 4.25 He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now let me run that last line by you. He was raised for our justification. Are you just saying hi to me? Just say hi. Okay, Tyler's going. (laughs) He's going. You've got to shut... And so I'm going to do that in just a minute. And, And I understand that. Okay. So he was raised for our justification. I want you to cogitate. Those of you that like to study deeply and think deeply, cogitate on Romans 4:25. Does the resurrection have a part in the redemptive work of Christ? He was raised for our justification. So part of the thought process of the Lord's Supper is we're rejoicing over the death of Christ because of the hope it gives us. We're going to see Jesus come again because he was raised and we're going to be ready to meet him because we're redeemed. Okay, so I teach my guys in the school that you're supposed to tell them And then you're supposed to tell them what you told them. Okay? So number one, the Lord's Supper is a spiritual sharing, both vertical and horizontal. You with me? Number two, it is a demonstration of unity. Never a demonstration of division. Number three, it is an identity memorial for the people of God. Number four, it is the great thanksgiving. And last... It is a proclamation of our undying faith in the redemptive work of Christ. Amen. Let's make the Lord's Supper special. Amen. Let's make it something deep and meaningful where people, people come to the very presence of God in the Lord's Supper. Um, I hope we'll think about this. I love you and appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Amen.
0: Thank you.